Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is sponsored in part by Boyd Group International's 25th Annual International Aviation Forecast Summit this August in Cincinnati. The only aviation forecast event. Register to attend at a reduced rate with a special promo code available only at airlinesconfidential.com. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is also available at airlinesconfidential.com. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net. He never faced a global crisis quite like this one during his decade as an airline CEO. He's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. And he's not joking this week. That's NPR here and now transportation analyst Seth Kaplan. Yeah, just hard to laugh right now, isn't it? Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. We're going to go back on our word about something we said last week. We'll talk about whether airlines sometimes outsmart themselves with fuel hedging. Then it's passengers behaving badly and a special coronavirus edition of Finer Wine. But first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Ben, I said last episode we would try not to talk about coronavirus, even though it was already then the most important thing in the world. But now it's gotten so much worse than it was then. So I really mean it when I say we'll try again next episode to find other things to get our mind off this. But first, let's spend a little while gaining some perspective. Uh, Sizable airlines around the world have, in some cases, basically stopped flying. And Ben, I remember how crazy we thought it was in 2001 when there wasn't a single commercial flight over America for a few days after 9-11. Or how crazy we thought it was when a volcanic ash cloud practically shut down transatlantic travel for more than a week back in, I think it was 2010. Uh, But this is like all of that on steroids. The transatlantic? Please, uh, I don't even want to go through the numbers because by the time you listen to this, no matter how soon after we record it, they'll already be outdated. But I, I just want to ask you a series of quick questions about things that maybe haven't been fully addressed elsewhere. First, As far as U.S. airlines, on one hand, they clearly went into this crisis in far better shape than other crises. Will they come out of this one in better shape, considering the crisis itself seems to be so much worse than even 9-11 or the global financial crisis, to mention the two big ones from this century so far? Well, it's hard to say who's going to come out in what way when we don't know when the coming out is going to happen, of course. Yeah. But what I would say is that there are a couple things that are in the airline's favor versus, say, 9-11, which is the only comparable event to the kind of demand destruction that we're seeing right now. And that's that there are fewer airlines. Consolidation has made fewer airlines. And the airlines have significantly stronger balance sheets and a lot more cash from having made money for the last 10 years. So the airlines are going into this problem much stronger. That doesn't mean that it's not going to hurt them. That doesn't mean they don't need help. And that doesn't mean that they're all going to get weakened as a result of this. They will. But they're certainly going into it stronger. Another thing that's different is immediately after 9-11, the capital markets, meaning the banks that lend money to people, closed themselves to the airline industry. They said this industry is too risky to lend to. And the government stepped in created what at the time was called the ATSB, which stood for the Airline Transportation Stabilization Stabilization Board. Board. That's right. And um, this is a case now where 
the capital markets, I'm not saying they're wide open, wanting to lend to airlines or begging airlines to borrow money, but they're not closed. And airlines in the last week have talked about closing some liquidity deals where they can get new lines of credit and such. And that didn't happen right after 9-11. Plus, they went in a lot stronger. And there still is a sense, as terrible as this is, there clearly is still a sense in the industry today that this has an end point at some point. And so what every airline is thinking about is how do we keep ourselves as strong as we can through whatever this cycle is so that when we emerge, we're in at least a relative ways as strong or stronger than we were before. Even though they're strong, it doesn't mean they're not asking for help from the government. Take us through what what these airlines are asking for, the U.S. airlines from the U.S. government. Well, the A4A, which stands for Airlines for America, is the lobby group that represents many, but not all airlines. And they formally requested from the government $50 billion in aid 25 billion of that would be grants that would be given to airlines to help keep them liquid through this crisis, although there has been no discussion publicly yet as to how that would be distributed among the different U.S. airlines. And then another $25 billion in loans. And then also what some of our listeners know, but maybe not all, is every time you buy a ticket in the United States – 7.5% of your ticket price gets paid to the government in an excise tax. That's a tax from the 1950s. Excise tax were used to tax luxury goods, and that's what airlines were thought of in the 50s. And that 7.5% tax, the airlines have continued to pay, and they've asked to not pay that tax for the next two years, basically to keep that 7.5%, not give it to the government. And the main reason for them asking for that was to help them rebuild some of the cash that they expect to lose while this virus is keeping people off airplanes. In the introduction, Ben, I mentioned that you, in your decade-running spirit, never faced a global crisis quite like this one. And I think that's true. But that doesn't mean that you personally didn't face maybe the same kind of existential crisis at that airline as some airlines around the world are, are facing today. Well, I think that's true. In 2008, when oil prices went to $147 a barrel, Spirit's business model was starting but wasn't wasn't optimized yet. And we had very little cash. And those energy prices really threatened to put the company under. And it took a big negotiation with our major aircraft lessor at the time and cashing in some hedges that uh, we had bought, but just cashed them in. And hopefully prices would go down afterwards. And that's what happened. And that certainly seemed as big for our little airline at the time, although that didn't affect the entire world as much. Other airlines consolidated. They used the high oil prices to close hubs that didn't really make sense in the first place. And the buyers in the consolidation used it as opportunities to grow themselves by buying some weaker carriers on the other side. So that felt different as a world event. And coronavirus is a world event. It's affecting airlines all over the world, European, Asian, South American, North American, And obviously, with travel bans from Europe and Asia, it's affecting carriers all around. And around the world right now, people don't want to gather. They don't want to be in in spaces together with other people. And that means they largely don't want to be on airplanes. I remember talking to one of your then competitors at, at an airline conference around that time. It would have been 2008 
who they were, I guess they felt they were in a better position than you were at least, although everybody was in bad shape, doing the math on like how many weeks other airlines could last with with fuel prices where they were, you know, the the burn rate and saying, and, and, and this executive told me that Spirit didn't have long, you know, and, and, and clearly if you hadn't taken those steps and, and it finally fuel prices themselves hadn't dropped, uh, that, that uh, might have been the case. Ben, this is far from the biggest issue, but one thing I think is worth noting is how these crises can rather suddenly cause types of aircraft to vanish sooner than we thought. I remember shortly after 9-11, I realized I had already flown on a 727 for the last time. And I didn't even, didn't even get to say goodbye, right? It was, it was now in the past. Uh, American now is grounding its 767s probably forever. Uh, of course, the reason is that when the airline industry suddenly shrinks and has to get rid of airplanes, obviously it's going to get rid of its least efficient planes, which tend to be the oldest ones. But Ben, uh, Air France, Lufthansa, and Qantas have all grounded their jumbo Airbus 380s. Those sure aren't old. Well, and I'm not sure the 767s are gone forever either in that the way airlines are managing this right now, Seth, is as a temporary, even if long, event. And yeah. so you don't see airlines actively returning airplanes. I'm sure there are discussions with both Boeing and Airbus for big airplane orders. What should we do about this? And are we going to take delivery of everything that we have scheduled to take delivery of? Uh, but there's still some sense based on what airlines have publicly said that everything they were flying before this could come back if, in fact, demand comes back. And so I think that's the issue with the 380. That plane is just so big. And if you're running 50% load factors on a 100-seat plane, well, you're missing 50 people or less because most planes don't run 100% full. Yeah. If you're missing 50% on an A380, you're missing hundreds and hundreds of people. Right, yeah. and so it's just a it's just a big big deal. So airlines make economic decisions. The reason that they're not grounding everything right now is because many of their costs are fixed. They're still paying for the planes. In many cases, they're still paying all their employees. And by not flying, they might save the fuel on that flight, and they'll save the landing fee at the airport where they land. But most of their other costs aren't going to go away. So even with a relatively light load, if the fare is reasonable, they can still actually generate some cash by flying. Now, they won't be generating enough to cover all their overhead and to pay for maintenance of the airplanes and pay for their headquarters and pay their CEO, their outlandish salaries and things like that, right? <laughs> Although they've taken pay cuts in fairness to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's right. So that's why airlines are still flying some. Also, yeah. the way most collectively bargained pilot and flight attendant agreements work, and by collectively bargained, that means they're in a union. Yes. So they bargain for their rights and their health care and things like that. In most cases, they bid for their flights, meaning they choose the flights they're going to fly around a month or so in advance. So in the middle of March, for example, the April flights would already be bid. And when they're already bid, that usually means that the airline's committed to pay them for the flights. So at that point, even the crew costs are fixed and they're not going to get rid of those crew costs unless they made a special deal with the pilots and flight attendants to do that. And so that's why I think you initially saw airlines talk about 5 or 10% cuts because that was the most egregious flying that most likely probably should have been cut even before the coronavirus. And then later you saw deeper cuts because they started cutting 
deeper into the schedule, meaning longer out into the schedule where more of the costs were variable and they could save more of the costs by canceling. I think that's why you saw that two waves. Not only did we get smarter about how big this crisis really is and maybe more sanguine about how big this crisis is, but also the fact that by canceling further out, they can actually save more costs. That that's an interesting and an important point, and and I should say when I picked the seven sixty sevens, like you said, it's not like they're going to go away. They're, I mean, they're, they're not the seven twenty sevens. That was a different story. It was a three engine airplane that required three pilots and all that. Seven sixty sevens. I. I picked American 767s because they are scheduled at some point to retire anyway before too long. There are others like the 767-400s at Delta and so forth that, uh, that, that have some more time. Speaking of airplanes, meanwhile, Boeing is about to find out the only thing worse than having hundreds of 737 Maxes on the ground that everybody wants is having hundreds of 737 Maxes on the ground that nobody wants, or at least that not as many airlines need right now with the industry shrinking. Well, that's right. And, and, you know, not great for Boeing, of course, but in a way helpful for the industry that all that capacity that has been held back in terms of the Boeing 737 MAX isn't there because then more capacity would have to be cut right now. It does sort of suggest that whenever things get back to normal, whatever normal ends up being, but what I mean by that is whenever people are comfortable flying again and businesses are comfortable scheduling business meetings and people are comfortable taking a vacation on a plane, whenever that happens again, if that happens around the time the 737 MAX is back, you could see a big increase in capacity or maybe that's the time to retire the 767 and some of these other planes, even though they do a little bit different missions, retire the older airplanes though. Yeah. And as you said, whatever normal is, after each major crisis, Ben, the industry seems to change in permanent ways. Uh, one thing is that some airlines disappear. That'll probably happen this time. But I'm talking about how, like, after 9-11, security changed forever. After a global financial crisis, the unbundling of the airline ticket went from niche to commonplace, at least in many parts of the world. Any idea thus far of what permanent change this crisis could cause? Or is it just too early to do that? I think it's a little early. One thing that seems almost obvious that could be a permanent change is just a better focus around cleanliness and around the way people are both trained and and managed to sort of handle a crisis of this type. So I think people will be more concerned when they're on a plane that actually things are clean for a while. We have short memories, so when this is over, maybe that'll go away quickly. And airlines have yeah. always thought about being clean. I think um, airlines will be spending a lot of time thinking about rebuilding their balance sheets, meaning building back the cash that they're losing through this time. And they could lose more if there's a national shutdown at some point, right? There could be even more losses. And so I think um, that will mean more focus on making money, maybe higher fares once this is all over, although it'll take a while. Initially, they're going to have to have very aggressively low fares to get people back on the airplanes. And maybe, you know, not holding out and doing as much what some airlines like to call strategic flying, which is a euphemism for flying that doesn't make money, but we think it's important we do it right now. And that'll, yeah. that'll probably reduce some as well. And 
Now, we have two airlines trying to start in the U.S. right now, one by David Nealman that he's calling Breeze. Breeze. And for those of you who don't know, uh, he started Morris Air and WestJet and JetBlue and Azul down in Brazil, right? So he's got a great track record. And then the other is Andrew Levy's airline, who's the former president of Allegiant. And uh, what, what I wonder is whether those airlines' startup plans are maybe delayed a bit now as a result of this. And that would actually be bad for consumers because – more capacity and new business models are always good for consumers. Yeah, absolutely. You have to think that this is now not the time perhaps to uh, start an airline, even with cheap fuel, but just so much else wrong right now. So much more to, to think about and talk about. But let's take a break from all that to remember back a few months ago when times were simpler and we got to think about things like Passengers vomiting in the hair of other passengers. Yes, this is the segment of the show we call Passengers Behaving Badly. A man on a Spirit Airlines flight from Chicago to Baltimore vomited reportedly in a woman's hair before the flight even left the gate. Fellow passengers described him as drunk. I guess so drunk that he mistook the woman's hair for an airsick bag. <laughs> she had to wash her hair in an airplane sink. The flight attendants put on gloves and did what they could to help her. The man had to get off the flight. No surprise there. Unfortunately, so did everyone else so that they could uh, deep clean the airplane. Uh, they, they all got to fly later. He didn't. Uh, ben, sometimes the problem isn't spirit, but the people who fly on it. And I, and I get to say that because I sometimes fly it. <laughs> well, this is just a disgusting passenger behaving badly. Knocking on a seat that reclined is, is annoying, but I wouldn't <laughs> call it disgusting. And uh, this is a case of some, you know, alcohol and flying never mix when it comes to the flight crew and often don't mix when it comes to the customers as well. Sometimes bad behavior happens when the flight attendants try to cut someone off because they thought they've drunk too much or yeah. had too much to drink. And then they get mad about that and do something. But the vomiting in the hair is something that I can't imagine anyone around wasn't just disgusted by. Revolted. And again, if you want to think about revolted by, and again, if you think about cleanliness and germs and things like that, if you're a germaphobe, that would completely freak you out. Even if you're not, who wants to be in that? So just getting everybody off the plane, cleaning it was the right answer, but just a terrible thing. You know, there was the uh, case of a passenger who had gotten tested for coronavirus and got the positive test in a text while they were on the flight. Uh, yeah, JetBlue flight came, down to West Palm. And, right. I mean, what, and what's he, he knew he might have coronavirus and he got on the flight. That's right. And, and everybody thought that was terrible. And they banned that customer for life for do for potentially, you know, infecting a lot of people. Yeah. I would think you'd want to look at something like this in this case as well and say, look, if you're going to vomit out another passenger, you really need to think of another form of travel. Yeah, happened so early that they had to cut them off and they didn't even get to sell them like a $9 uh, drink before they did that on Spirit, right? Well, now at Cruise Altitude here on Airlines Confidential, living life on the hedge. And then a coronavirus complaint during fine or wine. More Airlines Confidential is next. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is sponsored in part by Boyd Group International's 25th Annual International Aviation Forecast Summit this August in Cincinnati. The only aviation forecast event. Register to attend at a reduced rate with a special promo code available only at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This 
is Airlines Confidential. Fine or Wine is next, but first, let's take a question from Scott in Portland who writes, Hey guys, big fan of the show. My question is about oil prices and hedging. You'd mentioned recently that the drop in oil prices is a big windfall for the airlines as fuel is their number two expense after labor. And I should insert there, it's very often the number one expense. It's only when fuel is very cheap as it is right now that it becomes number two after labor. But anyway, uh, Scott continues, uh, but isn't that only true if airlines are buying at current prices rather than hedged prices? If airlines are still hedging oil prices like they were Around 2008, wouldn't they actually have to pay out cash when oil prices drop? So my question is, are airlines still hedging oil prices today like they were a decade ago? Ben, I guess there are actually a a, a few different questions here. First of all, you'd have to say, which airlines? Because it's different in different parts of the world. And then we can get into some of the details of, of the hedging. But just for anybody who doesn't know, and I know a lot of people listening probably know a lot about this, a lot probably know a little about this and some might know nothing about it but hedging just means uh you lock in future oil prices uh in, in one way or another uh you're you're not fully exposed to rising or falling oil prices it, it, it's almost like an insurance contract you get to give it however you want but basically it's as if you know if if, if uh you know you're driving a car and and uh you know right now fuel is uh, you know, whatever, two twenty-five a gallon in, in in America or something in various parts. And if somebody came to you and say, "Hey, um, I'll promise you that next year you'll pay two fifty a gallon," right? Would you take that deal or not? Uh, you know, and, and it might be three dollars a gallon and you win, or it might be two dollars a gallon and you lose. But that's, I mean, that's that's just the concept. Very briefly for anybody who doesn't know. But back to uh, the question, Scott asks: Are airlines still hedging oil prices today, like they were a decade ago? Well, that was a good explanation, Seth. And the short answer is no, they're not. And one of the reasons they're not is there are reasons that airlines hedge. Hedging fuel, which is a way to help get some control over something, can be good, but it also can be bad for the reasons you said. So some airlines that are very low on cash might hedge fuel to protect their liquidity. They want to make sure that if you buy a ticket and you don't fly for you know, four weeks or six weeks, and if fuel price goes up in that time, they would lose money on your ticket. So they sort of hedge the price, meaning they pay some money to lock in the price that you bought your ticket at so that that protects them from losing a lot of money when they carry you just because of a change in fuel price. Another reason that airlines hedge is to soften the volatility of earnings. They may say, look, in a quarter where fuel prices is real low, it looks like we make a lot of money. Then the next quarter, fuel price is higher. And it looks like we don't make as much money. And we don't want investors to think that our business is getting worse or customers aren't liking us when it's just fuel. So by hedging fuel and getting a, a smoother rate at what they pay, they can maybe make their earnings more consistent across quarters or across a year. But that costs money too. And it costs money to hedge. And what airlines have figured out over the last number of years is that with very fuel efficient planes and with better fuel management techniques, most pilots, for example, today taxi with only one engine running, not two, and that saves fuel. And airlines are very technical about determining how much fuel to put on the plane because fuel's heavy and the more you put on, the more the plane burns. So you don't you want to put enough fuel to manage the flight and all the safety precautions, but you don't want more than that. And airlines have gotten very smart about that. And flight planning has gotten smarter and everything. So airlines have figured out that their only real exposure 
is the relative short-term exposure from when you buy a ticket till you fly, which for most people is only about six or seven weeks. Because further out from that, they know they can change capacity or they can change price to adjust for changes in fuel. So American Airlines made a big decision years ago that we're just not going to hedge anymore. Because it was actually, think- yeah, actually U.S. Airways before it's really before they merged with right it was Doug Parker and Scott Kirby at U.S. Airways in like 2009 and then they they now are well you know became the ones who ended up running uh, running american right it's, yeah it's like and US yeah Airways. and what they said is and, yeah. what they said is we understand our business well enough we've got enough levers to move our business to change for macroeconomic effects and we've got a lot of cash so we have no risk of running out of cash if fuel prices go up so why play a game we don't really understand and why be in a business that isn't our business which is you know hedging commodities that's not what we're in the business of. We're in the business of right. carrying customers. And so they got out of the business, and most airlines have gotten long out of the business of long-term hedges to protect themselves. Now, you might ask, and Scott didn't ask this, but he might have asked, do airlines want to like try to lock in these really low oil prices we have right now? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, that's, uh, and I don't think most airlines will be tempted to do that only because I don't think they want to spend their cash on anything right now without knowing sort of what's going to happen to that cash number um, over the upcoming months. Yeah, I remember when that management team at, at U.S. Airways, which, which later became the management team at American, said they said, "Look, th- th- they viewed it as ex- very expensive insurance." They just looked back, and and the the, you know, the history there. Gosh, this is so interesting. I'm glad Scott asked the question. I wish we had even more time to do it justice. But uh, you, you know, through all of that decade, Southwest Airlines, which had been in just so much better financial position than everybody else had used all you know its its financial strength to hedge fuel much more extensively than anybody else and because fuel just kept going up 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 to as you said 147 dollars a barrel <laughs> we talked about it last block at you know when the spirit was on the precipice so what it looked like is just a big discount for southwest and and everybody kept waiting for it to stop going up but it kept going up and then the, you know, the analyst community and others were kind of on the backs of other airlines. Like, why didn't you do what Southwest did, right? And, and I mean, the answer was partly that they just you weren't in the position to do it. But but if people got in this mindset that fuel hedging was like a discount, right? And 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 you almost forgot that it can go both ways. So then what happened is some airlines that are detri- detriment, airlines that hadn't been hedging a lot, kind of finally threw in the towel in 2007, 2008 and said, okay, fine, I guess we just better hedge because when fuel is 100 Forty-seven bucks a barrel now. Maybe it'll be two hundred bucks a barrel, you know, next year, right? And so, and so, some of them locked in those really expensive fuel prices, and then in two thousand nine. It, it went down to, I think it was like 30 something bucks a barrel at one point, right? I mean, it went, well, it really went way hard. down, that's for sure. Yeah. Way down uh, dur- during the recession. And, and so this was like the worst of all worlds because now there was no revenue and those airlines didn't even get the benefit uh, of falling fuel prices. And, and U.S. Airways was one of many airlines uh, that was in that position. And they just basically said, look, this is ridiculous. Uh, one other uh, Minor note, but for what it's worth, is that the the way that airlines hedge fuel, those that still do, ha- has changed somewhat. So some airlines, Southwest actually still does hedge some fuel, and, and many other airlines around the world do. But whereas in the past, they truly sort of promised to pay a future price for fuel, kind of like I described it about the, uh, you know, if you could do it as a driver. Now it's a little different. Now they, they many of them, they just kind of buy options where you spend money up front 
and, and it gives you the protection later, but you're not truly paying later the way many of these contracts are structured for more expensive fuel. It's just that you wasted your money on the front end, but then you, you're you still kind of paying the price that ends up being the price later. Is that, is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, I think that's right. And an important thing about that, I don't want to keep dragging this conversation about hedging <laughs> over, but the important thing about that is when they do that, they typically lose the good side if fuel prices drop to a certain extent too. So what they might do is they say, if the price is a dollar right now, I'll protect myself to never pay more than a dollar five, but I'll also be sure to always pay 95, even if it drops below 95. So in doing that, they're not paying that much up front, but they're sort of putting what they call a collar around the price um, to say, we won't pay more than X, but we won't pay less than Y. So, it really does sort of can hurt them in both ways, protects them if fuel prices go up, but they don't get the benefit that their competitors might if the price goes way down. Well, I hope Scott in Portland enjoyed that discussion. I, I'm sure some other people thought it was absolutely fascinating. Others uh, have, well, maybe they haven't like actually stopped listening because they just fell asleep, right? So maybe they're, maybe they're <laughs> still playing. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, great question there by Scott. I hope our answer was, was as good as the question. Well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. That's 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website and you'll see a form on there to submit your question. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for Fine or Whine. We listen to an actual customer complaint that we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. This time we have something a little different, very timely. Uh, a friend of mine who listens to the show sent in a complaint that a friend of hers, Alex in Miami, posted on Facebook. Uh, and look, we have a lot of good questions and complaints in the queue, and we'll get to all of them in future episodes. But we wanted to get this one now, given everything happened in the world. Ben, I showed it to you. Can you tell us Alex's complaint? Yes, and I think this is a good one to use right now. Alex says, I'm never one to rant online, but I am livid. The U.S. is forcing all citizens coming from Europe to be rerouted to select airports that have additional screening. Sounds understandable, since it is a U.S. mandate and not the airline's fault. Not only would they not refund our original fare, we had to pay an additional $2,500 on top of the over $2,000 it cost to leave Italy early. And what for? There was no additional screening, just because they have machines that take a photo of your passport. That is all they did. No virus screening, no temperature check, not even a questionnaire. So why force everyone to pay all this additional money and inconvenience? Plus, now you have to pay to stay a night in New York City, plus transportation, to add insult to that injury. What is the purpose? You specifically want to route everybody through seven airports just so the airlines can make additional money because they already have a lot less flights? That is the only thing accomplished here. I sincerely thought there was going to be additional screening that we would get and that we might get tested for the virus. This is wrong and more dangerous as anyone carrying the virus is simply forced to spread it more. Someone needs to pay for this. I cannot believe the stupidity. What if we didn't have cards to put this on? My heart goes out to folks who may be stuck because they do not have the means of getting home without this extortion plot. Okay, rant over. 
Okay, so Ben, there's a lot going on there. We could do a whole other show on the on the situation at the airports where, I mean, you have these people coming back from countries where they, they were forced to come back because we're worried that, that they might have coronavirus and they're all packed into these uh, immigration and customs areas, probably giving each other coronavirus. So that's that's a whole other topic. But just as far as Alex's rant here, having to change the ticket and then pay all this money because of changing the ticket, fine or whine? Wow. Well, I'm going to say it's fine because it's not really whining if you have to go through what Alex went through. But I will say that when the government said there's going to be a ban of travel from Europe, I'm sure a lot of people raised their hand and said, oh, no, how are we going to get home? Then they said, no, but not for U.S. citizens. They can come back um, as long as the airline's flying. Then they said, but they're going to have to come back into one of these seven airports. Now, I might have thought that the airline they were flying on, and I don't know which airline that was. Yeah, it wasn't in the post, yeah. I would have thought that if that airline flew to one of those seven cities, they should have rerouted Alex to say, look, we we had to change our flights, but we're only flying you to one of these seven cities. That's not, not where you're going, so your ticket's good for that. And we'll even carry you to the closest one to where you're going. So if you're going to Philly, we'll take you to New York, right? Or if you're going to the West Coast, maybe we'll take you to whatever West Coast airport is one of those seven. But they they obviously didn't do that. And so I would first put it to the airline that Alex was flying on is why didn't they reaccommodate her on a flight they had to one of those seven cities? Now, it's possible they didn't have a flight to one of those seven cities. So they just told her – I'm sorry, we can't take you to America because we can only go to those seven cities and we don't fly there. In which case, she really did have no choice but to buy another ticket. And all I can say is at least she was able to get out and come back, although she spent a lot of money. Now, once she got there, if all they did is look at her passport, I think that's another problem because I don't think there was any expectation that these seven airports, once selected, would do something so minimal I don't I didn't expect everyone to be tested at that point, but I thought maybe they'd fill out a form or have their temperature checked or something. And in fact, I heard complaints on the media about it taking so long at these seven airports because they were taking said it was taking about 60 seconds per person. But they never actually said what they did. So I kind of assumed, well, they must be doing something like she suggested. So what I really hope is that if you're flying back from Europe that you're able that the airline you're flying on will get you to one of these seven airports and when you get there they'll do more than just scan your passport. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, on final approach now that does it for a rather heavy airlines confidential this week. Please uh, fasten your seatbelts and ensure seat backs and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions and remember we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Or you can jump on the AirlinesConfidential.com website from the Airlines Confidential Studios. I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza reminding you that we're not grounded through this. We'll talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.